The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 this morning. It's in pay, on page 985 in the Pew Bible. I encourage you to look in your Bibles this morning, look in your bulletin. There's going to be lots going on in this passage, and it will be helpful for you to follow along. So keep your Bible open this morning. We come to the end of our study through Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter through to the Colossians. Next Sunday, we're actually going to study, because these letters go together, we're going to do a one-part, one-day series on Philemon. It is actually a companion letter to this letter to the Colossians. It's only one chapter, but it's a letter that travels with this letter because it's specifically addressed to a particular member of the Colossian church named Philemon. So we'll look at that next week. And then after that, we're actually going back to Genesis and we're going to finish up Genesis by doing a study through the life of Joseph. So that's where we're headed. But today we're in the end of Colossians. And if you look at this passage, maybe you've already taken a look at it. It's those final greetings that Paul often does in his letters. And when we see these final greetings, we have the tendency, if we're honest this morning, to think about these greetings much the way we think about the genealogies. And you know what I mean by that? Oh, we can skip this portion. It's not really that important. We're tempted to look at all of these crazy names and say, this has nothing to do with my life in 2023, and so I can just move to the next book of the Bible. Let us not forget 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that says, some scripture is God-breathed. Is that what it says? No. All scripture, and that includes the final greetings and all of the crazy names that we see listed here. All of Scripture is useful to teach us and to train us in all righteousness. And so these are in the Bible for a reason. It's not an accident. And believe it or not, they are very, very rich. We could spend weeks just in this last section with these names, and they have much to teach us. So with that in mind, follow along with me as I read God's Word, Colossians 4. 7 through 18, Tychicus, say that seven times really fast, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 
For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Arachippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us uh, with these final greetings this morning. Let's pray together. Father... This is inspired by you, and it is useful for us, and so I pray that you would make it useful. I cannot do that. Only you can do that through your Spirit. And so come, Holy Spirit, and put this passage inside of our hearts and give us something that we can walk out of here with. Teach us, train us, rebuke us, correct us. All the things the Word does, do that through this passage this morning. And most importantly, as we end this study, I pray that you would show us that Jesus is all we need, that Jesus is enough because in him the fullness of God dwells. May we encounter Jesus in this place this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Not sure if we have any baseball fans in the house this morning, but if you're a baseball fan, you might have seen where Scott Rowland was elected this week to the Baseball Hall of Fame. The induction ceremony, of course, is in July in Cooperstown, but Scott Rowland's considered one of the greatest third basemen of his era. And Roland finished his career with 316 home runs, a batting average of 281. He's an eight-time Golden Glove winner, a seven-time All-Star, and in 2006, he won the World Series with the St. Louis Cardinals. And you might have seen this floating around social media this week, but there was a social media post, and it said, this is the greatest thing that you will watch all day. (laughs) And so I decided to click on it and watch it. And maybe you did too. But when Roland gets the news about being elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, the first people he tells is his parents. And the video starts and he's walking into his parents' house and his parents who are in their 80s and his mom, he says, I'm in. I did it. And he grabs his mom and he hugs his mom and she says, I'm so proud of you. And of course, everyone's in tears in the house at this point, and then he goes over to his dad in the living room, and his dad's on a walker, and his dad gets up out of his chair, and he walks over with his walker, and he throws his arms around his son, Scott, and he says, I am so proud of you, son. And later that evening, Scott Rowland did his very first interview after being named into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and he's on one of these Major League Baseball broadcasts, and the interviewer says, Scott, what goes through your mind knowing that for the rest of your life, you will be known as Hall of Famer Scott Rowland? And the camera goes to Rowland, again, in his first interview, and so the expectations might be he's in his trophy room 
with all of his awards behind him, or at least in a private room where he can give his full attention for this first interview after being elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And the camera scans to Scott Rowland, and instead of being in his trophy room, he's in the living room with all of his family surrounding him. And you do not see him. He's going in this video with his cell phone to each person of his family. He's scanning around the room. And then he comes onto the screen and he says, that's what goes through my mind. My family. Because you see, that's where everything started in my life. And I would not be here in the Baseball Hall of Fame without them. And so we're all here. And we're celebrating this thing together. And the reason why I tell you that story, because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in this passage. When it comes to the Apostle Paul in ministry, we could say he has a Hall of Fame career, couldn't we? I mean, think about all the churches he's planted. Think about all the books of the Bible that he has written. And instead, he says, it's not about me. He says, let me show you my family. And then he proceeds to talk about his co-workers and his friends and those who have encouraged and supported him and who have shared responsibility of taking the gospel to the world. And if he were being interviewed, he would definitely, almost certainly say, I wouldn't be here without them. I would not be here without these people who have been so critical to ministry success. And so he starts naming some of those people in this passage. He names 10 of them here. Fellow workers in the Lord, friends. And one of the things we learn from this is that ministry, it's never a one-person show. It's always a team effort. It's always people coming together using their gifts and their abilities to move the gospel forward in the world. And so let's look at this passage. Let's look at these crazy names. And let's look at these final greetings. And let's see what they have to teach us this morning. They teach us three things, if you're a note taker. They teach us about the power of the gospel. Secondly, they teach us about the work of the church. Lastly, they teach us about the nature of our hearts. So the power of the gospel, the work of the church, the nature of our hearts. Number one, the power of the gospel. And we see the gospel on full display in these final greetings, and we see it in the names. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Tychicus was a native of Asia Minor, He became a Christian. His life is transformed so much so that he gives his life to the ministry of sorts, to being a part of Paul's ministry team as a courier. And so Tychicus is the mailman. He's the one that carries this letter and other of Paul's letters, but he carries this one to the Colossians. And he also gives missionary reports to the churches and tells them how Paul is doing. Verse 9 Traveling with him is Onesimus, and we'll talk a lot more about him next week when we look at Philemon, but here's the preview. Notice it says, who is one of you? So Onesimus was from Colossae, and he was a slave, and his master was Philemon, who was a member of the Colossian church. And Onesimus runs away, we don't know exactly why, but it just so happens, no, nothing just so happens, right? In God's providence... He crosses paths 
with the Apostle Paul. Paul leads him to Christ, and Paul says, go back. Go back to Philemon, and I want you all to reconcile and make it right and teach us what it looks like for you all to relate together as brothers in Christ. We'll learn again more about him next week, but for now I want you to see that Onesimus is an amazing picture of the power of the gospel in a person's life. We also see the power of the gospel to reconcile those who are at odds or in conflict with one another. Look at verse 10. Paul mentions Mark. And then he puts these parentheses and says, concerning him whom you see, you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. So why the parentheses? I mean, John Mark is one of the most famous people in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's connected to Jesus. Barnabas was his cousin. He was very well known. And so wouldn't it be a given that if Mark comes, that they should welcome him? Well, the reason why he puts this in parentheses is because in Acts chapter 13, 12 years earlier, we see that Mark deserted the Apostle Paul in his first missionary journey. And so can you imagine what that did to their relationship? It caused lots of tension and division and hurt between Paul and Mark. But we read here in the phrase, welcome him, indicates that that division or rift has healed. And in our kingdom communities right now, now, our entire church is going through The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And at the beginning of that book, it's foundational to peacemaking and learning to resolve conflict. It is the gospel. We forgive. Why? Because Jesus forgives us. We move towards others in reconciliation. Why? Because God, when we were sinners, enemies of God, he moved towards us in order to reconcile us through Jesus Christ to himself. The gospel is the fuel and power for peacemaking and for resolving conflict and healing things that were once broken and fractured. It was true for the Apostle Paul and Mark and their relationship, and it's true in our relationships as well. Not only do we see the power to transform through the gospel, the power to heal and to reconcile, but also to, to unify. I mean, think about the diversity of people mentioned here. The Apostle Paul, remember Philippians chapter 3, tells us that the Apostle Paul was a social elite, we could say. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a tribe of Benjamin. He was blameless to the law, a Pharisee. He's converted. It says circumcised on the eighth day. He had it all. And then Tychicus is the mailman, from Asia Minor, verse 14, follow along with me. Luke is a physician. Verse 15, Nympha, a woman from Laodicea, Onesimus, a slave. And then we have listed three Jews and three Gentiles. The Jews, look at verses 10 through 11, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. They are the only men of the circumcision group. And then look at verses 12 through 14, he names the Gentiles. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. And so think about this. What do you know about Gentiles and Jews? They didn't like each other. 
They hated one another, and yet we see this amazing unity between these two groups who are known for their animosity and division. We see all of these people who would have nothing to do with one another otherwise all come together. Why? One word, Jesus. Because you see, that's what Jesus does. Jesus brings people together. We see it in Paul's ministry. We see it in Jesus' ministry, don't we? Think about the disciples. Think about Simon the Zealot who was rebelling against Rome. And then you have Matthew the tax collector who worked for Rome selling selling taxes. Natural enemies are side by side doing ministry together as friends. Thomas doubted. Andrew was all in and shared the gospel with everyone he came in contact with. Think about who was around Jesus. If you read the gospels, you got conservatives and liberals and young and old and people who are joyful and people who are sad and people who are hard chargers and people who are passive. You've got moral people and immoral people. Jesus brought all of those people together. They're involved with him. They're around him. Why? Because Jesus brings people together. That's what he does. That's what the gospel does. And so by unity, now, of course, we don't mean sameness. Okay, it doesn't mean that all these people just lost their opinions or views. Of course not. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that those things or those preferences suddenly take a back seat and get demoted for the sake of Christ. What binds us together in this room and what binds us with Christians all over the world is not social class, it's not race, it's not economic status, it's not a political party, it's Jesus. He brings us together so that when people walk through the doors of our church, it doesn't matter how they voted, it doesn't matter how they educate their kids, or how much money they make, or how successful they are, we are family And we're part of the same family because we are united around Jesus and nothing else. It is the power of the gospel that makes a slave like Onesimus. Look at what it says. Paul says, you are a beloved brother. It's the power of the gospel that brings people back together like Mark and the apostle Paul so that they're now friends again. And it's the power of the gospel that can make enemies like Jews and Gentiles, people who are unified and have deep love for one another. And may that same power of the gospel be on full display here in our community so that the world would know the way that we we belong to Jesus because of our love for one another. Secondly, the work of the gospel. Again, When you look at the New Testament, you think, man, Paul's doing all of this because he's mentioned a lot, but we know that it is not a one-person show here in ministry with the Apostle Paul. And I want you to notice, so let's look at these names again because they bring that out, but notice two things in particular as you look at the names. First, notice how Paul talks about these people. Tychicus, the mailman. He doesn't say you're second class because you're just carrying the mail. Look at what he says. My beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, Epaphras, 
who is one of you. Remember, Epaphras, Colossians 1, is a regular dude. And he's in Ephesus, and he hears Paul preach the gospel. He gets converted, and he takes the gospel back and shares it in Colossae, which is his hometown, and this church springs up. And that's who Paul's writing to. And Paul calls him... Paul calls him a fellow servant of Christ, and he emphasizes that he was a prayer warrior. Verse 14, Luke the, he didn't have to say this, Luke the beloved physician. Verse 15, Nympha, we see using her gifts of hospitality to host this church in Laodicea. And here's my point. Paul didn't view these people as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. He didn't view them as parts of a machine. They were partners. They were all in it together. They were friends. They deeply loved one another, and he recognized them, and he recognized their gifts, and he was genuinely thankful for each of them. And the other thing we notice is the diversity of gifts and responsibilities in, this, in these names. The church goes forward back then, the early church, just like it does today, with people like Tychicus, who is carrying the mail, Epaphras, who's sharing the gospel. He's teaching people, discipling, praying, giving, Tychicus giving mission reports to people. Luke, who's caring for people and taking care of the sick. And Nympha, who is opening her doors week after week after week for a house church. And it's no different today. We are to use, as the church, our gifts and our roles, and we are to tether ourselves together, and we are to lock arms and move the gospel forward in the world. Let me give you an illustration. October 2015... The L.A. Times, there was an article titled, Tethered by a String and Trust, by David Wharton. And it's the story of two men, David Brown and Jerome Avery, and here's how it begins. Listen, the shoelaces worn and frayed, with loops tied at each end, and David Brown curls his fingers tightly around one loop, and Jerome Avery grabs the other end. There are four inches between them. They are two sprinters. And together they hold the cord as they burst from the starting blocks, charging side by side down the track. Their arms pump in unison, their legs churn in identical strides, so they look, here it is, and sound like one person running. Why are they bound together or tethered together by a shoelace? You know why? Because David Brown is blind. And no blind athlete has ever run 100 meters as fast as David Brown. He recently broke the 11-second barrier, and his fastest time is 9.58, which is fairly close to the world record by Usain Bolt. How does he do it? He's tethered to a sight guide, Jerome Avery, who keeps him running fast and keeps him running straight and safe. And here's the thing, Jerome Avery actually had running ambitions of his own, but he decided to do away with those and to give his life to David Brown. He decided instead to tether himself to another. 
And the two began with an eight-inch shoelace, and it's now cut in half to four, and you should watch them and see them run. It's an amazing thing. And here's why I tell you that story, because it's a picture of the church. So often we would rather run alone. We would rather run our own race and do our own thing and serve in our own way and give to our own ministries and do it all by ourselves. But here's the thing. God never has asked us to do that. You know what God wants from us? He wants us to tether ourselves together. He wants us to lock arms and go fast on mission for God. That's what the early church did. That's what we learned from these greetings. Paul, Tychicus... Epaphras, Luke, Nympha, they were regular people. They weren't superheroes. They were people like us who tethered, tethered themselves together and used their gifts to advance the gospel in the world. You have been given a gift. And you are to use that. We are to use that gift to serve this church. As you know, we are growing and the temptation is to think, well, with so many people coming, all these things are being handled. We have tons of needs. We have needs in the children's ministry. We have needs in the nursery. We need more greeters. You name it, we need it. We need people for Wonder Lab this summer. And would you pray about how you can use your gifts, how we can all lock arms together and move the gospel forward in our community and in our city and ultimately the world? Because that's what God wants from His church to be tethered together on mission? Would you tether yourself to us so that we can move forward on mission? Lastly, the nature of our hearts. And if you look at verse 14, you'll see a named mention that doesn't get much ink. And the name is Demas. We learn more about Demas at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, you know what he says? Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That'll wake you up, won't it? And so in the middle of these random names, seemingly random names, is a warning for us this morning. He's in this list. We don't know much about him, but we know he seemed, seemed to be part of Paul's team. But in the end, he loved the world more than he loved Jesus. And it reminds me, does it remind you of the parable of the sower and the divided or strangled heart? Remember, the word gets planted and then the thorns come up and the thorns are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And what do they do to the seed? They choke it out. And you see, it's so subtle. It's so dangerous, isn't it? It's so subtle because the thorns in our lives are often good things, money, achievement, success. But slowly, they become ultimate things, and they crowd out Jesus, and they choke him out of our lives. Slowly, Jesus just simply becomes an add-on in our lives or just simply a part of our life. Where are you in love with the present world more than you're in love with Jesus? Verses 15 and 16, you see something mentioned there. I don't know if it caught your attention. The church at Laodicea, 30 years later, remember in the book of Revelation, something happened. 
Something in those 30 years happened because in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Laodicea, and it's his strongest, most confrontational letter. And remember what he says to Laodicea? You're lukewarm, and I will spit you out of my mouth. John Stott says to be lukewarm is to be blind to your own condition. And so this church at Laodicea had stopped seeing their need for Jesus. They had stopped seeing their need for the gospel. When do we stop seeing our need? When do we stop uh, seeing our need and becoming blind to our own condition? You know when? When we are in love with this present world. Do you see it? Do you see the connection there with Demas and Laodicea? Their problem is exactly the same. They had both moved away from Jesus and had fallen in love and become captivated with this present world. Listen again, doesn't mean money's bad, possessions are bad, achievement, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying when those things, which are gifts that God gives us, good things, become ultimate things, we're in trouble. Because they blind us from seeing our need. And when we're blinded and when we're not needy, It hinders our growth. It hinders our growth individually, and it hinders our growth as a church. Again, very subtle. Don't miss the warnings. Heed the warnings here and pay careful attention to your heart. And then the question is, so what do we do? Well, thankfully, the book in the passage does not end with warning, but with grace. Look at verse 18. Grace be with you. Okay, we know grace is unmerited favor, but grace is also a person, right? Jesus. And so Jesus be with you. And that's exactly the way Paul begins in Colossians 1 verse 2. And so at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, we have grace bookends. And that makes perfect sense because everything in between chapter 1 at the beginning and the end is how God is at work through his grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense, again, because the false teachers were coming and they were saying, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is great, but he's not enough. If you want real spiritual life, you need more than Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, in this book, is trying to guard the church. He's trying to guard us, too, of delusive offers of fullness that the world is holding out. And over and over and over, the Apostle Paul is just simply saying, look at Jesus. This is Colossians. Look at Jesus. Jesus is enough. He's better than everything else. He's everything your heart needs. In him is all the fullness of God. Whatever you lack, he gives you. And that's what Paul says in Colossians. Do you need peace with God? Jesus gives you that peace. Do you need freedom from guilt and shame? Jesus gives it to you. Do you need hope? Jesus gives it to you. Do you need love? Jesus loves you with a love that will never let you go. Do you need acceptance with God? Jesus gives you acceptance with God through his righteousness. Do you need forgiveness of sin? Jesus gives it to you. Do you need a Savior this morning? Jesus is that Savior. Do you need to grow and change? Stay rooted in Jesus. Jesus changes you. That's Colossians. Jesus is all you need. He is the image of the invisible God. He is creator and sustainer. He is the head of the church. 
He reconciles us to God, and he is really more beautiful than everything that the world has to offer us. And my prayer for us is that we would hold on and hold fast to Jesus with everything we've got, because he really is better. Thanks be to God for this amazing letter that Paul writes to the Colossians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us. He truly is more beautiful than everything else around us. Would you convince us of that truth? Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see the power of the gospel and the ways that you're at work all around us and even in our own lives. And Lord, would you help us to identify our gifts so that we can all lock arms and tether ourselves together as a church and move forward on mission. Pray that we would go out into this world to love and to serve you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.